This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Something about the both the beauty and the danger... They're complementary in a way, right? The beauty is heightened by the danger, and the dangers are somehow made more virtuous by the beauty. That they're kind of they're two sides of the same coin in a way. Today we are plunging deep into the coastal forests of Western Canada, where ancient trees tower in clouds of mist and a carpet of moss and shadow softens every sound. And we're in search of something more than just adventure, something beyond an experience, deeper than a story, larger than life, something real, something imagined, or something in between. Sasquatch, Bigfoot, Yeti, the abominable snowman, numerous names and legends across dozens of cultures surround this mountain man whose eluded definition and capture for centuries. And when writer John Zada decided to investigate these stories for himself, he found a lot more than he bargained for. This isn't a search for Bigfoot like you've seen on TV. There are no infrared cameras or grainy videos or bear traps. Instead, this is a pursuit of a deeper story hidden behind the legends. We'll hear about indigenous myths in Canada, the sacred places that shape them, the environmental activism that looks to protect them, and maybe, or maybe not, one or two very nervy sightings. Are you ready? Let's go. John Zada wrote an absolutely beautiful and mesmerizing book about the story you're about to hear. It's called In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond, In Search of the Sasquatch. And you can find it wherever books are sold. You can also learn more and keep up with John on his website, johnzada.com, and follow him on Instagram at johnzada, that's Z-A-D-A. And if you're interested in the concepts of myths, monsters, legends, and folklore, perfect for this time of year, we have a bunch of great episodes that explore that subject matter. Listen at the end for that list or check out last week's On Location episode exploring the myths and mysteries of Rocky Mountain National Park, including the legend of the blue mist. I can't wait to tell that one around the campfire. But for now, welcome to Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best stories from the road. My name's Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer and your host. And I just want to kick off by giving a big virtual fist bump to any new listeners. The show is growing, which is so exciting. So if you've recently discovered us, then welcome. Come and hang out. If you like travel and adventure, you're in the right place. We're going to get on well. 
And if you've been listening for a while, you are a legend. I love you and you have fantastic tastes in podcasts. And I want to get to know you better too. So please DM me at Armchair Explorer Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and tell me where your next big adventure is and where you're dreaming of one day going. Maybe we'll be able to do a story about it on the show soon. And also tell me what you're going as for Halloween, because if you're listening as this episode is coming out, it's that spooky time of year again. So the last two years I've gone as Peaky Blinders and I may make it a hat trick again this year because it's a lot of fun. But my wife is trying to talk me into going as a Victorian era ghost with her. So what should I do? Thomas Shelby or a dead aristocrat? You decide at Armchair Explorer Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and I'll let you know what costume wins. But don't worry about that just yet, because the mist is rising in the valleys of the noble beyond, and we have some squatching to do. So back in the summer of 2012... I traveled to the west coast of British Columbia in Canada to an area known as the Great Bear Rainforest, uh, basically on a travel magazine writing assignment. Really kind of wanted to get up to this really remote place that has got this world-famous pristine rainforest, essentially. And so, you know, I was planning on doing a whole bunch of adventure things, but something really strange happened when I got there by some strange twist of fate or coincidence the communities up in that part of the central and the north coast of British Columbia were all experiencing a rash of Sasquatch sightings, Bigfoot sightings and there was a buzz in the communities and you know as soon as I landed I started hearing about these stories and these encounters and suddenly the trip kind of began to evolve and I began sort of chasing down these like really interesting tales of people seeing these sort of humanoid, half man, half beast, hair covered creatures that are reputed to be living, you know, in these remote wilderness areas in North America, particularly up on that stretch of coast in Western Canada, which is extraordinarily remote. I suddenly found myself in the middle of this basically Bigfoot style adventure and by putting myself into the shoes of these Sasquatch enthusiasts, in a way kind of wanted to learn, well, why am I interested? Why has this whole thing stuck with me for so long? Why am I back here as an adult after having seemingly grown out of the subject, spending months of my life risking injury in the bush and, you know, potentially making a fool of myself to other people who think the whole thing is crazy? Like, why am I doing this? Like, what is it about this whole thing that is just so gripping? John, like many of us who were kids in the 80s, grew up on Bigfoot. He was on the TV. For ages, he is hidden in the forest until the Hendersons bumped into him. He was in the movies. But be on the lookout for an uninvited guest. There were songs about him. Sasquatch was everywhere. It was almost inevitable that you would grow up curious, at least. And those two streams came together unexpectedly in the wilds of British Columbia. The childhood obsession and the buzz of sightings that were happening up and down the coast. 
He decided then and there to come back next summer and he knew exactly where to begin because on that first trip, there was one name he kept hearing, Clark Hans. His sighting occurred about two decades earlier. It wasn't a recent sighting like some of the other people I would talk to afterwards, but it was still quite vivid in his mind. He was on a duck hunting expedition on the edges of the backcountry with his cousins. They were hunting ducks and they'd split up at the confluence of the Bella Coola River. It's, it's a massive, massive estuary. And he found himself essentially on his own in the estuary. And he was standing there, I guess, looking for ducks or waiting for ducks or whatever one does when you're hunting ducks. And he looked up to the mountain, to the bluffs above him, and he just saw this dark, hair-covered, man-like figure standing on the cliff looking down at him. He panicked from what he told me. He sort of froze. He kind of felt paralyzed. He felt that the creature was looking at him, was staring into his being, looking into his mind, and he essentially panicked. And as the creature ran off, he basically took off all of his clothing. It was, I think, wintertime or early spring when there was ice still in the river. And he crossed the river, the freezing cold water, and he held his clothes aloft as he did so because he knew that when he got to the other side, he'd have to put his dry clothes back on. But he fled home and arrived in a kind of panicked, sort of devastated mental state. And and his family had to take care of him henceforth after that because he was essentially traumatized by the sighting. The idea of the Sasquatch in mythology is long standing. Many cultures around the world have a similar legend and the creature lives, as John writes in his book, in primeval nature and collective memory. The legends are particularly strong in the indigenous cultures of present day Canada and each legend differs slightly from the next. Some of these creatures used to be human, some never were. But something fundamental, John writes, is that these stories depict Bigfoots as quasi-human, intelligent, self-aware, and calculating. Even more, they insinuate a shadowy and almost forbidden parallel world which the creatures inhabit. For many cultures, glimpsing one of these creatures is a sign of changing fortunes. For others, it is a bone-chilling omen. But whether it terrifies or intrigues, in the sprawling remote forests of British Columbia, everybody knows somebody who's seen something. And so John embarked on his journey, ready to begin with Clark Hans and follow the web of stories and whispers from there. He arrived at a town called Bella Bella, deep in the aptly named Great Bear Rainforest. It's essentially a massive expanse of coastal temperate rainforest, coniferous rainforest. It's an area of essentially old growth. I think it's been equated to perhaps the size of Switzerland or Ireland. And it's very much off the beaten path in that there's not really much roadworks leading into there. And sort of dotted into this area are these small communities. And they're First Nations communities they can be as small as, you know, a few dozen people, as large as a few thousand, and travel in there is primarily by boat, small planes, float planes. So it's a very difficult place to reach. And so, yeah, it has some of those 
remote aspects that you would get in Alaska or Yukon or places a lot further north and further distant, but it is a lot more lush because it is further south and the trees are bigger. So you get the remoteness and you get the lushness. You get the ocean, you get these river systems, and it's this really, 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 really productive, magical, ecological area. So Bella Bella is the seat of the Helsic First Nation and whose territory are located primarily on the outside coast on a bunch of islands. I had rented a room from a local Helsic woman who had a bed and breakfast, like a very informal bed and breakfast. And in a way, she sort of it's kind of funny to say she kind of sort of became like an almost like an adopted mom we got on really well and then she became my point person for the community when john arrived at the bnb he found a simple house with a locked door there was a note taped to it with a phone number to call for somebody to come over and unlock the house for him he got along well with his host elvina and she helped him sniff out stories of sightings she even accompanied him to a potlatch a spiritual and cultural festival usually not open to outside eyes but not everybody was thrilled by john's presence it being such a resource rich place it's attracted the logging community the mining industry those sorts of activities and as they started to kind of push in there these sort of battle lines began to be drawn up between you know industry and the government and the local communities and then environmentalists and then foreigners or visitors from outside i, I would say to some degree have been looked on a little bit with suspicion they're an activist nation they're pretty involved in protecting their resources and fighting for their rights so there was this kind of initial tension there was always this kind of suspicion hanging over my head that like maybe i was somebody there undercover maybe i was like a law enforcement person or a spy or maybe working for like the oil companies or whatever and so um that then kind of led to sort of a climb a somewhat climactic confrontation with the community i was at a backyard party and one of the members of the community sort of took me to task on being a journalist and coming all the way from the outside world just to kind of write about Sasquatch. Now it 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 turns out that he didn't believe in the creatures and he kind of thought the whole thing was baloney or whatever, right? So, you know, hearing something like that when somebody tells you like we've got all these problems here, we're kind of like this impoverished place, and his exact words were our band store just burnt down, we have no food. How is it that you're here writing about Sasquatch? And yeah, and so when you it's a bit of a jolt. Like you're kind of almost it's it's almost like kind of stepping outside of yourself and getting a view of yourself for a moment. There was nothing that I could say, you know, in opposition to what he was pointing out. It was true. And that fight is also at the heart of this story. According to archaeological records, the Hiltzek have lived in this coastal region for at least 14,000 years, traveling by cedar bark canoes across open ocean and lakes, harvesting wild fish, birds, and mammals of land and sea. And although their culture is still strong, the fight to protect their ancestral lands is ongoing. The threat of pipelines, tanker spills, logging, and industrial fishing is ever-present. 
Who is he, an outsider, a journalist, to come here and write about something as seemingly trivial as Bigfoot? And yet, in the search for the supernatural, John would uncover something deeper and real. He would discover the noble beyond, a place where myth, belief, and wilderness merge into a liminal space where the wash of modernity does not belong nor comprehend. And in this space, through the stories shared with him, he would be granted a glimpse, perhaps, of the land through indigenous eyes, a land far richer and more precious than oil. His search continued and was soon rewarded. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. So about three kilometers down the road from Bella Bella is an area that the locals there refer to as Old Towns. And that is an area where the old village sites used to be that particular area has significance to the community just because of the sacred nature of the previous settlements being there. But it also kind of has a little bit of a, not a haunted kind of character, but just it's sort of like imbued with, with the spirits, let's say, in a sense. And so there also tends to be a lot of Sasquatch sightings at Old Towns. So when I got to the Old Towns area, I basically did what I did in a lot of the other communities that I would visit afterwards. I explored the shore, looking at the mud, looking at the sandbars, looking for tracks, essentially, because one of the activities of a Sasquatch researcher is to look for proof of the animal. And one of the most tangible types of proof is, or, or, or the most tangible proof is the tracks. While I was there, I ran into a group of young people and by chance came up that they started making some jokes about seeing a Sasquatch and then one person did this Sasquatch call and everything and and I'm like oh I'm like tell me more what do you mean they had seen a Facebook post that someone had posted a few days ago about like Sasquatch tracks at the lake in Old Towns and so after hearing that I kind of went back and started scouring the water again looking for these tracks after spending about an hour or 40 minutes I didn't see anything I came back around to the other side and I actually went and kind of saw these. They were kind of like these sort of children's feet kind of thing. Kind of, you know, one was very, very narrow. One was a little wider. It was two individuals. 
And, you know, I at first you kind of look at them and I, I perhaps I'd seen them when I maybe dismissed them as human. But everyone in the community told me, like, anyone who goes to Old Towns doesn't really go into the lake. They don't go into the water. They don't walk into the mud. It's sort of like very few people even go up there from the community. It's not somewhere to swim. Whereas these tracks are going into the water and coming out of the water and something which apparently never happens. The sun was setting as he stood on the muddy lake shore, gazing down at the tracks through the clouds of his own breath. The teenagers had left and he suddenly felt aware of just how silent this place was. Well, you know, when you're looking for something, especially something of that nature, which is highly elusive, either doesn't exist or may not exist in the way that we understand it to, you're kind of almost hoping that it is. You know what I mean? So I had tried to be more skeptical. I had encouraged myself to be this sort of more, let's say, even-handed, objective, healthily skeptical person about it. But at the same time, there's this other personality that kind of exists hand in hand that you know, wants this to be the truth, wants this to exist. You want to find this stuff. And it was that sort of other persona that was constantly getting me to look over my shoulder all the time, kind of always wishing that something would jump out around the corner and pop out behind a tree. And so part of me would look down at these tracks and I'd be like, well, they do look a bit strange. What also makes a difference is being in this kind of mythological fairy tale landscape, right? Like you're in a place where basically like if you, if you hear somebody tell you a Sasquatch story or any kind of a monster story, let's say, like, you know, in the middle of a downtown urban area, it's just not the same effect, right? So, I mean, we were there in the exact location with all these kind of misty mountains surrounding us. And it's almost too easy to imagine the creatures being there. So it has a, it has an added effect. In lands like these, where the veil of reality grows thin, where sounds twist and footprints hint at a fantastical knowledge, in those places, land and story begin to shape each other. Like two drops of paint bleeding together on a shared surface, the contours of one are reflected in the sentences of the other, until the two are inextricably linked. I've felt something like that too, personally. In the key mountains of Japan where the Shigendo monks seek supernatural powers, in the windswept mesas of the Navajo Nation where skinwalkers rattle the walls of Hogans at night. Places where the lines between fantasy and reality blur, just slightly, just enough that anything feels possible. And if this blurring of lines was happening in Bella Bella, it would prove even stronger at his next stop, deeper into the bush. The area known as Quay, which is about, I think, 35 or 40 kilometers to the southwest of Bella Bella, again in Helsic First Nation territory, it's a little camp at the mouth of a small river. So to be there really took me out of the town for the first time, like in a real way, because the area is filled with grizzly bears and I mean you're basically in a small camp and just on the edge of the camp is where the real mainland coast backcountry begins and so and so it was really kind of the perfect place to both get an inside privileged look at you know a kind of a less seen part of the community's life and also to potentially kind of 
experience and feel the nature of, of, a, of, of I, I think, was still an active Sasquatch place, basically. And so there are a lot of projects that at the time were happening at Quay. And so there were people doing bear studies. There were people building what's called a salmon weir. There were people going constantly into the bush. And so one of the things that happened when I was there was a few of the students, the sort of the older students who were doing the more research-driven work, decided to go sleep upriver, further up the valley in Quay. And so um, when nightfall hit, they had not gotten to their destination in time and they had gotten lost and they started calling for help on the radio. And then this whole drama unfolded where, you know, it was this kind of this sort of big dramatic rescue because it happened in the middle of the night. The walls of the tent began to feel thinner and thinner as John listened to the crackling shrieks on the radio, the students' screams punctuated by beeps and static. As the rescuers piled into canoes, their flashlights disappearing upriver, silence fell in the camp, and John couldn't help but wonder if any of his hosts would be returning at all. Fortunately, not long afterwards, the group did return. But the students were shaking with fear. They had heard something in the brush just beyond the weak halos of their headlamps. Bears, probably, but different, unusual. Grunts and growls emanating from the pitch blackness. A few nights later, they'd went back up there. And this time, they were confronted with not necessarily bears, but something else that had been screaming and howling at them and... They were extracted again, as it turns out. And when the team leader returned to camp, when I spoke with her the next day, she was pretty shaken by it and didn't really want to talk about it. It's one thing to read about these encounters in a book or to hear anybody's story like written down on paper, let's say, or in a newspaper or in a magazine. Or when you're actually sitting in front of somebody in person and you're making that eye contact and there's that physical relationship, the, the, the cues, the body language. You go deep in, like you kind of go into a trance state, right? And especially with a story that that is, that that's, that is you know, that amazing or, or that impossible seemingly to believe. You kind of go into a zone. So there is that aspect of it where you're basically kind of brought into the person's memory, essentially, where you're actually almost visualizing it. And part of that John began to feel was the wilderness itself. There are few places as remote and untouched, few places left where human hands have not touched and perhaps, thankfully, cannot fully reach. Something primeval lurked in the shadows of his imagination that prickled his skin, an atavistic fear, an ancient fear that was impossible to ignore. You do become hyper aware of your own mortality and your vulnerability. You can walk in a straight line or what you think would be a straight line and you could essentially wander forever or until you run out of energy or food or water. Like it just goes on and on and on and on. It's just, it boggles the mind. There's something almost incomprehensible about it. Something about the, both the beauty and the danger, they're complementary in a way, right? The beauty is heightened by the danger, and the dangers are somehow made more virtuous by the beauty. They're kind of, they're two sides of the same coin in a way. 
Beauty and danger, reality and myth, perception and possibility, all at the same time. The days rolled into weeks, webs of whispers leading him deeper into the bush and deeper into the community too. He hadn't found Bigfoot, not yet anyway, but he did find other giants. The Pacific waters adjacent to the Great Bear Rainforest have a great deal of whale activity. And when we were in Quay, we had an environmental organization that had visited the camp to take the kids out onto a boat and to take them within proximity of humpback whales that were moving up and down the coast at the time. And like, so we, we were able to actually um, come into very close proximity. And so I don't know how many people get a chance to get that close to an animal of that size, but it's, there's a presence to these animals this sort of undeniable presence, the sentience, this intelligence, this sort of almost kindred, gentle soul that kind of accompanied the, the mass and the sort of the, 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 the size of these creatures. And so it was this kind of dance where we would spot them and they would just kind of come up for air and then kind of dive back down again, throwing their flukes up into the water. Other times, more amazingly, they would breach. So they would just jump out of the water where they would essentially lift their entire body out of the water and splash back down again. There's another behavior called sky hopping where if the whale just wants to look at you, it'll just pop its head up straight up out of the water, look at you and go straight back down the way it came. It's an incredible experience. And... When you're looking for one thing specifically, you tend to lose sight of kind of the bigger picture. The whole ecosystem, the whole place, all of the creatures, all of the animals. Whereas your, your uh, attitude sort of is, is all sort of, sort of corralled into this sort of one animal, there's all this other stuff happening all around you. And so when I was there, I, I mean, I learned essentially that like all of these components in the rainforest are interconnected. And so, you know, like the salmon will run and their bodies will decompose and, you know, dry up on the banks of the rivers. You know, the bears will come and eat the salmon. The eagles will come and take the salmon. They will take their carcasses further inside the forest and then fertilizes the forest. And then when the rains come, that washes all those nutrients back into the ocean where the wildlife takes in those nutrients and so everything is interconnected in this place and then that you have the human component and so yeah i think by being there you begin to kind of see the place as one entity as opposed to separate entities it becomes an organism in and of itself and so whereas when i first arrived it was sasquatch 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 i think the overall effect of my being there for a long period of time is that it became way more than Sasquatch. The area and what it meant in the travels and the milieu, the landscape. The more time he spent with the First Nation communities, the more he saw the land through their eyes, a vast, interconnected, living organism. He began to understand that for them, the land did not simply need to be preserved. It needed to be honoured. And as the days and weeks passed, he began to recognize that Indigenous preservation, conservation, and activism 
were more than just political pursuits. They were matters of life and death. I was there just as the communities that I was visiting were preparing to declare the Great Bear Rainforest, you know, off limits to bear hunters. And I accompanied these guardian watchmen in one of the other communities that I visited, and they were on patrol. I mean, you, you have to understand that these communities, in contrast to the amount of territory they hold, like, there are very few people, like, it's very hard to put eyes on the land, right? And so this is the reason they have these people who are kind of out on their boats constantly and kind of patrolling and because it's very hard to do from from the center of these towns. And it happened a lot. People often got caught and would often be accompanied out. And so there was an ongoing issue and drama that was at play. And it alienated me further even from my own home environment because it's just like, it's like being in another world, essentially. They were going to patrol the far reaches of this 70-kilometer-long lake that extended from the coast all the way to the high reaches of the coast mountains in their territory. And so it was an honor and it was a privilege to be with them and to kind of take part in their, you know, cornerstone stewardship activities and everything. So it was two watchmen, myself, and, you know, they're playing music in the in the boat and, you know, they're smoking cigarettes, cracking jokes. Like it was a very, it was kind of like going on a really, really, really fun trip. Yet at the same time, they had a professional set of tasks to exercise, doing some inspections related to salmon runs at the time. But the main objective in the journey was to get to the very end of the lake, which I would have never even come close to anyway. Like it would have been so hard to get to these places where there was an abandoned logging camp from the 70s. And the concern was that because there was infrastructure there, to have access to those shelters would perhaps be tempting or as a place to land a helicopter, for instance. So as soon as we did the more sort of the lighter checks and activities, the mood became kind of heavier. You know, guns came out more for the bears and for people. It wasn't like that they were expecting to have any kind of a confrontation, but Yeah, it it sort of felt like being on a kind of a military patrol or something a little bit. Like it had that kind of seriousness to it. As they neared the end of the lake, they approached a point where two flanks of forest sloped together in a tangle of trees. John's guides muttered to each other nervously and throttled the boat to accelerate. This was the entrance to a place known to the locals as the Hoodoo Valley. The Hoodoo Valley, the so-called Hoodoo Valley, It was essentially this ghost story of this haunted valley in Wicano territory where a bunch of loggers who had come, I think it was two different companies, had come to log that watershed on two separate occasions in the 60s or late 50s or the 60s and had both had very strange poltergeisty events happen to them and in each case had driven the loggers out of the valley and they basically left the towns and so people still talked about that I met an elder in the community who you know explained to me a little bit about what had happened there and why it was haunted and why there were supernatural occurrences 
he said in an essence that some bad energy had been transferred to the exact physical location of that valley from other parts of the territory by the old chiefs at the time. And so, and yeah, nobody would take me. No one would go there. No one wanted to go there. People generally didn't even really want to go into the bush too far from town anyway, let alone to a place that had those stories of the old loggers and stories even predating the loggers. Like there was some kind of a story about some members of the community who had gone there hunting and had never come back and their bodies were found without their heads. Like that's sort of really colorful kind of tall tale sort of thing. As they pass by the valley's entrance, glassy water rippling beneath their boats, John felt something stir in himself. The hairs on the back of his neck stood on end. If Bigfoot did exist here, this was surely where he would be found, somewhere where his presence emanated from the gnarled trees and hanging vines as a physical presence. But he would never know. No one would take him, and it was too dangerous and hard to reach to attempt on his own. But perhaps not knowing was the point. Running in parallel with the physical search for the creature was this growing fascination on my end with the kind of philosophical implications of the Sasquatch. And what really kind of turned me on to that was the indigenous communities. And this, in a way, is the first lesson about what the Sasquatch tells us about ourselves. And that is, in these communities, the Sasquatch is a physical being. It is a non-physical entity. It is a character and a story. It is a guardian of the forest. It has all of these different functions. It is a teacher. It is a herald of good news and bad news. It's many things. And so, whereas in our more, I would say, Western, here in North America, Anglophone culture, like we have this very, I would say, binary, dual way of looking at this. Either it exists or it doesn't exist. But although there may not be a binary answer to the question of Bigfoot's existence, science may have an explanation, and that too became a big part of John's story. I have a continuing interest in the psychology of perception. And when you explore a topic like this, the essence of it is really perception, right? I mean, if you're trying to address the question of what is the Sasquatch? Does the Sasquatch exist? What are we seeing? What are we not seeing? These cut to the core of perception. So a lot of what I write about in the book in between all of these sort of adventure episodes is the science of perception, the things we see and how do we know what we know and all of these sorts of things. Because, I mean, you can't really address a subject like this without to some degree touching on this stuff. We've all heard of self-fulfilling prophecies and suggestible thoughts. Maybe somebody told you that misheard a lyric in a song and now you can't hear it any other way. Or maybe you believed an item to be lost and therefore completely failed to see it sitting directly in front of you. We like to think of ourselves as objective recorders of the world around us. But the truth is that what we believe can literally transform what we see. And in a land imbued with belief, The forest itself, that wild, untouchable land, had become like a mirror for what is believed, what is hoped for, what is feared, and what is nearly lost. John had one final stop, 
and the coin of beauty and danger was about to flip again. As far as Sasquatch lore goes on the coast, Bella Coola is really the epicenter of this phenomenon. It's this massive, massive alpine valley with all of these other side valleys connected to it, all of these salmon-bearing streams, tributaries of the Bella Coola River. It's kind of like a maze in a way. And so on one hand, I did feel like the journey was beginning to wrap up. And there was a sense of like distress in a way because I'm wanting to kind of find this kind of indisputable evidence. And this is sort of the last stop on the trip in a way. And yet at the same time, it holds all of this promise because it is potentially the most Sasquatch active community, let's say, on the coast. And at that juncture towards the end of the journey, I kind of found myself a little bit sort of confused because I had started to move more in the direction that what mattered more than the existence of the creature one way or the other is the significance of it. And so I had thought that I had come to a good place where that was concerned. But then when I arrived in Bella Coola, it was like, oh man, I'm back in the ground zero. I'm in Sasquatch Central, basically. And so I kind of returned more into that Sasquatch hunter mentality. I was certain that if I was going to see one, it would probably happen in Bella Coola. That's what the place represented to me, a venue of staggering mountain beauty, because that's the place is just big. I guess you can say I fell under the sort of the hypnotic spell of the land. In Bella Coola, John met a bear hunter turned outdoors guide named Leonard Ellis, whom he begged to take him into the bush. Leonard was skeptical. It was high bear season, but finally he consented. Their destination was an old cabin that Leonard owned about a day's hike into the woods. Apparently, someone or something had broken in and ransacked the place, and Leonard wanted to investigate and clean it up. After bouncing in Leonard's truck along a dirt road, they finally pulled over and waded into the undergrowth. To John, it felt like passing through a shadowy curtain. The sun and noise of the settled world vanished as soon as they stepped through the invisible gateway between the trees, like they'd entered another world. Leonard's shotgun was slung over his shoulder, and as they pushed deeper into the murky woods, the air itself seemed to thrum with tension. They hiked through dense growth, moving slowly. When they reached their canoes, which Leonard kept to ferry himself across the lake, they found them split and leaking. So they changed course to walk around the lake, even as the sun raced down the horizon. In the dusk, they stumbled down a steep rocky chute before finally arriving at the cabin. Bears? John asked Leonard as they looked at the food and furniture strewn throughout the place. Probably, he replied. Can bears unscrew jars? John asked uncomfortably, picking up an empty pickle jar. They simply looked at each other, words unspoken hanging heavy in the air. The following morning, they were outside preparing to leave when Leonard's dog began barking furiously. For those who spend time hiking in places where there are bears and who even see bears at a distance sometimes, I mean, we all in our own way prepare mentally for what we'll do. 
and how it will happen. And we enact the scenarios in our own mind. We walk back slowly. We do all the things. But, you know, in this case, the animals had just appeared. And it was almost like we were going about our own business. And then all of a sudden, it was there. Growling and gnashing its teeth and freaking out. And it was like 20 feet in front of us. And it was big. And the sow had run up, you know the tree and it was like the battle formations were like were being set up essentially and you know when you're in the moment it's completely different than how you imagine it especially when at any second this thing can charge you these things are incredibly swift powerful massive massive animals and i mean even when i've met people who've been attacked by bears and i'm just amazed that those who survive do given how incredibly built these things are. So yeah, it was definitely a life flash before your eyes sort of moment. And, you know, maybe the first true panic that I felt, there really is no words for it. It is a heart-stopping experience. After weeks of searching for something elusive, glancing over his shoulder, turning at the sound of every snapping branch, every fleeting glimpse of movement in the corner of his eye, John had come face to face with something very real and very dangerous, a true monster of the forest. But even as heart-pounding as the bear encounter was, and as terrifying as Clark Hans running through icy waters or the night screams over the radio in that remote camp, in the end, that wasn't what the story was about. What began for him as a simple adventure, a bit of fun, ended as something much deeper and more profound. The creature has a kind of fantastical, quasi-mystical quality to it, right? It's like a titan. It's large. It's gigantic. It's like a demigod, a superhero. It has superhuman strength, exceptional speed. It appears and it disappears seemingly at will. It can induce, you know, or project fear. And it's, you know, hyper-symbiotic with its natural surroundings. And so it's kind of like a superhero. And so in a way... In a society where, I think, a really secular society where we've lost a lot of our myths, we've lost a lot of our religiosity, life doesn't really have any kind of meaning beyond the earthly or physical sphere, this almost fills in the shoes of, of a kind of belief system in a way, right? Or that there's something greater in life beyond just the kind of the mundane, physical, empty universe that is just the Big Bang and, you know, all life at some point will vanish from the planet and there's like, it imbues life with kind of something special, something magical, something meaningful. And I think even having spoken to the more scientifically minded or I would even say scientists themselves who study Sasquatch and they will of course say you know, it's an important subject and we have to study it and all, you know, there are the scientific reasons for it. And yes, I grant those reasons completely as valid. But I think looking into the eyes of those people, I see wonder and I see amazement. I see this kind of perception of a fantastical being. And so I, I don't entirely buy that, like, it's just a kind of job. It's just science. It's non-emotional. You know what I mean? There's, there are implications there that are, that are superhuman. We are all born believing in magic, 
As children, we chase dragons and fairies and hide under our blankets at night. It's in our nature to question what's beyond the veil of the world our eyes can see. And when that combines with belief, with our deepest held hopes and fears, angels appear and devils and maybe a Sasquatch or two. And maybe the reason Bigfoot holds such sway and is seen particularly in places like this is because of where we come from, all of us, and what is disappearing from our view. I think we pursue Sasquatches, many of us, because in a way we're grasping for or chasing an ever-receding wilderness, both from within and without. You know, Sasquatch, I think, is a personification, a human embodiment of sublime nature. It harkens back to prehistoric versions of ourselves when we lived in a similar way. Almost in a way, they may be more human than we are because of that connection, that greater connection to nature that we had. And, you know, being as mad as we are as a civilization, I think deep down we seek their level of groundedness and connectedness with the natural world. We're almost are pursuing versions or aspects of ourselves that we ourselves want to be or want to have. And I think as we become more alienated with technology, with AI, as the pillars of our humanity are eroded by modernity and by a whole bunch of other things, I think this search for the Sasquatch will increase. I think this is an ever-growing field, you know, that runs in conjunction with our alienation and our disconnection from not just nature, also by from what it means to be human. And I think these are very, very, very deep drivers. I think, yes, there are drivers that are interest-driven and exploration-driven and fun-driven, and I want to be the first to do this. But I think at the core of our beings, it's because we're lacking something. And I think that that symbol contains or is an embodiment of the thing that is missing in us. And if our interest in Sasquatch is fueled by our need to connect to a disappearing wilderness, it is significant that the Great Bear Rainforest is home to so many rumours and sightings. Because while John's book captured a snapshot, a moment in time, every day the people of the First Nations encounter another obstacle to preserving their sacred land, be it an oil company, a logger, a politician, and their connection to that wilderness slips perilously close to destruction. Speaking with locals in Balakula, John finally heard the term that made it all make sense. Do you realize where you are? One man asked, flinging his arms wide. This is the land of serendipity, man. The ultimate landscape of myth, magic and metaphor. The domain that is the unseen universe. Interconnection and deeper meanings lie around every corner here. It's where your Sasquatch, your coincidences and a million other possibilities exist. It's the noble beyond. I think the noble beyond is that place where magic, mystery, metaphor, the non-tangible aspects of human life exist. At the same time, there is an overlap 
I think, with the physical world. I went to a physical place, a real place, to access that noble beyond. So it's sort of like a, a coming together of above and below. And so it's not just a place that's in our head. It's a place that we can also attach to sacred places, to lifestyles, to values in terms of living, to landscapes that all embody those things in their own way. It's not just a mental space. It's not just a consciousness. It's a physical place that taps into it by virtue of, of what it is. We may never know the truth about Sasquatch, but as someone told John, that's not the point. Because what we can do is protect the land that breeds those beliefs, that offers us the chance to examine a deeper truth. And in doing so, we preserve our own ability to find the wilderness within us, to capture that magical place of legend and imagination. That's what John discovered. That was his story. And that fight remains. Thank you so much to John Zada for sharing this story and taking us on the perfect atmospheric journey for this time of year. You can find more of John's work at johnzada.com. And I highly suggest getting his book about this investigation because, spoiler alert, we didn't even get to the end of his Sasquatch adventures in this episode. So go ahead and pick up your copy of his book, In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond, in search of the Sasquatch. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to explore some similar ones, check out Wonderland on a Vision Quest with nature writer Ginny Reddy, one of my favorites. So thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to share this show with your friends. Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Armchair Explorer Podcast and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. It just takes a moment. So hit that subscribe button and it really does do us a huge favor that helps us to keep making this show for you. And don't forget to visit aptpodcaststudios.com for more on their shows as well. Some really good stuff up there. So until next time, keep following whatever tracks you find and keep your eyes and mind open to that noble beyond. Because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive. This episode was produced by Armchair Productions. Find our other shows at armchair-productions.com. Armchair Explorer is part of APT Podcast Studios. Jenny Allison wrote and co-produced the show along with me, and Charles Tyree did the audio editing and sound design. Theme music by the artist Sweet Chat. I'm Aaron Miller. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.